Professor Wendy Rouse um, is author of a book called Her Own Hero, The Origins of the Women's Self-Defense Movement, which was a big hit, I think, and it was published in about 2017. And Wendy is talking to me now. Hello, Wendy, how are you doing? I'm great, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, I'm okay. It's, it's great to talk to you across these many time zones. Um, let's just hope that the internet doesn't let us down. Um, so you're a professor in, uh, in San Jose and you're a professor of sociology and interdisciplinary social sciences. What's your, what's your background? What, where did you start? Yeah, I'm a historian by training. So I studied history as an undergraduate, received my bachelor's degree um, from Sacramento State University and went into history archeology span for a while, master's degree and yeah. then decided to explore the PhD program. So I started studying history, American history, specializing in progressive era, early 20th century. Okay. And yeah, so that's, that's my um, academic. And the book, the book um, was published, did it come out in 2017? Yes. Um, and it, it, was a big hit wasn't it i mean there was a lot of interest around it the sense that i got and i know i'm in britain so i'm very much on the other side of the pond but i did get a sense that like it caused an immediate response people read it immediately yes i think martial arts historians especially martial arts martial artists in general self-defense instructors were very interested in it yeah um I mean, I, I got the book. I don't know if I got, I think I was sent a review copy, um, possibly even just before it actually came out. And uh, the, the first thing that struck me was you used terms that as a, as a Brit, like as, as not a historian, not an American, I didn't know when you were talking about. I didn't know what the progressive era was. I had to start Googling things. Is that like an American, that's, that's a known term for American history, is it? The progressive era? Yes, 1890 to 1920, okay. approximately. This okay. era of like, reform and, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I'll, I'll learn something on the first page. So, um, tell us the story, what precipitated your interest? It's women's self-defense in America. What, what was the origin? What's your origin story for your interest in this? Well, it's really interesting because I had studied, I started studying martial arts when I was 10 years old. I started studying Shotokan karate and I progressed through that through high school, uh, was received my Shodan in, um, in Shotokan. And then in college, I started studying Weichiru, which is an Okinawan system. Mm. And I studied that for 15 plus years and rose through the ranks in there and became a teacher, started teaching women's self-defense classes uh, mm. for, for teens and for adults. And at the same time, I was going through my education. So I was getting my degrees, you know, and, and working on history. And I never thought of connecting the two, of studying some sort of history of women's martial arts or, or anything like that. So I was actually working on my dissertation, which was a completely different topic, but it was progressive era. So it was turn of the century immigration history. Okay. And I was going through like the old newspapers from the time period, San Francisco newspapers, national newspapers, really. And as I was scrolling through the newspapers, looking for information related to my dissertation, I came across the image that is the cover image of the yeah. book. And that image surprised me because here you see this a woman in, this, in the clothing of the era, right? And she is using these techniques, these self-defense techniques, these classic modern techniques mm -hmm. of Palm Hill Strike to yeah. try to take down an assailant. Yeah. And it confused me because 
my teacher, my, my teachers had always taught us the kind of the story that uh, women's self-defense, women's training in martial arts was really mostly emerged out of the second wave feminism, yeah. that they were kind of the pioneers in their field. So okay. I was confused because it's like, wait, this is much earlier than the 1960s and 1970s. So my curiosity was aroused. And so I took, I clipped that. And then I just started this massive search, trying all these different search terms to see if mm -hmm. I could come up with what was happening. Mm -hmm. So that's how the book began. So when did you, what year was this when you began to, to, to search around a bit and think there might be a project here? It was 2010, actually. Okay. 2010. Mm -hmm. So it took a long time to come to the point where I thought there was enough material for a book. And what's the, what's the date of the cover image? Is the cover image, is that, um, is that? I believe that's 1904. 1904. And that's a classic. I mean, we would call that a palm heel now, wouldn't we? But right. when I've looked at some self-defense, not self-defense, the, the military stuff that was being taught to soldiers, US and, and British and allied forces during World War II. And the trainers used to call that a chin jab. And it was one of the basic techniques that they taught to to all all kind of conscripts and all volunteers. It was the the, the chin jab. And they used to train it like this. They'd get soldiers to do this and they'd just smack just practice smashing your hand into. And then that becomes an eye and a takedown. And then and then they also used to teach um, what they called the rabbit punch, which is the chop to the back of the neck to kill because they used to kill rabbits. And then they would do an axe kick, but they would just call it like a heel stamp. And those are the three basic, because a chin jab can become an eye gouge, can become a takedown. And then, yeah. anyway, that I'd never really looked at the technique on the cover image, but that's a brilliant, uh, yeah, devastating, devastating technique, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, so talk us through the, the book. What, what, which would, where would you place the first kind of tremors of the origins of the women's self-defense movement in the United States? Well, I found that they were, it was paralleling the fight for women's rights to vote, especially in, in uh, the UK and in the US. And kind of this physical empowerment era for all humans, right? That there was this real interest in physical fitness and learning about improving your health and this anxiety over urbanization and the growth of the cities and the factory labor, that it was making people weak and threatening your well-being. And so it kind of emerged out of a little bit out of physical fitness movement and a little bit out of this women's empowerment feminist movement that was happening at the same time. Okay. So you, um, was, was it a direct response to an actual or a perceived increase in maybe harassment or, or or sexual based assaults or crime was it was it or was it a response to maybe a moral panic about that I mean what was the what do you think yeah so in the book I talk about three different kind of motivations uh, for women studying self-defense and one is definitely a concern about street harassment and yeah. uh, violence against women the other has to do with uh, the, the suffrage movement specifically. And then the third is about violence in the home. And all three of those factors come into play for women specifically. Um, and yeah, I mean, women's place, you know, Victorian society, 19th century, this whole concept of separate spheres that a woman's place is in the home and men's places in the public sphere of work mm -hmm. on the streets. Um, and so women are, are, with the feminist movement, women are stepping outside those bounds. They're 
moving into the professional world, they're going to school, they're going shopping in the city. Like they are starting to be more of a visible presence on yeah. the city streets. And what they find is a lot of backlash against that and a lot of harassment. Hmm. And so there's big concern as they are uh, stepping out into the public. And we're talking about middle-class women, right? Because working-class women were already there in the public sphere and were already experiencing this. Mm -hmm. But it's these elite kind of upper-middle-class women, and they're experiencing the street harassment that's pretty similar to what women even experience still today. Mm -hmm. And they are getting frustrated with... Um, this and how, how do we react? How do we behave? And they're, they're getting all kinds of responses from everything from, <clears throat> well, maybe you should stay home. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, maybe you should have someone with you to protect you, like a husband or a male friend, um, to people saying, no, just you know, to claim your space, go out there, take, you have the right to walk down the street. And um, especially boxing instructors, uh, jujitsu instructors, a physical fitness activists started to really emphasize that women could do this mm -hmm. and women reached out to them and asked for lessons in, mm -hmm. in boxing and they, they actually called up gymnasiums and said hey can can you teach us some techniques to protect ourselves and so these instructors ag agreed and saw this whole new market open yeah. up for them oh. and so I mean the, the, the time period is it, it matches similar the the the, the suffrage movements uh, and and the, the birth of feminism in the UK and I guess other European cities. Does it have you seen like is it comparable? Like it emerges at the same sort of time across um, modern urban cultures or uh, uh, and, and countries, or or are there different temporalities depending where you are in the world? I really just focus on UK and US, but there is a similar thing happening in different parts of the world. Mm. And I think that will be an interesting thing for someone to study too, is to think about how this all connects. You could, yeah, you could look at the different demographic things and think actually in all of these places, this happened, then this happened, and then. Yes. Mm. And, and I think it comes out of Germany too, right? With the physical fitness movement in Germany. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and in, uh, in Sweden and, and all, all sorts of cultures like that, yeah. Um, and I, 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 the other thing, the thing that, one thing that interests me is the question of, um, like, what did, what did their training look like? You've mentioned boxing and you, you've mentioned uh, other things. So, I mean, in, in Victorian era, Britain and Paris, Geneva, you were seeing the development of combinations or the first combinations of jiu-jitsu in Bartitsu with, with the French savate, which is very elegant kind of kickboxing with the Swiss Lacan, which is the, the cane fighting or stick fighting. And it's very class-based. It has to look elegant. You know, it's for the, it's for the Victorian gentleman. And, and the, 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 the suffragettes kind of tapped into that energy. Is there a class-based dimension to, the, to what people are doing? You know, like, like a lady should do this or, uh, or a, a lady shouldn't do this kind of stuff. Is, yeah. Do we see that in the US? For sure. They were signing up for boxing classes and there was an emphasis on the fact that ladies and gentlemen really shouldn't engage in direct you know, physical uh, combat per se. So there was a lot of emphasis on bag work, on sparring, light sparring and uh, shadow boxing. Uh, so any, if, a, if a woman or even a man kind of crossed into the competition aspect of it and actually getting more into prize fighting, then that was considered really stepping across the line and of, okay. of what was genteel culture at the time. 
And, um, and jujitsu, jujitsu was was very uh, questionable at first when it came to the United States because there was a lot of concern, especially among traditional boxers, that jujitsu was more feminine, that it was not a manly art, that mm. it was it was a reflection of of Asian culture as of the yellow peril of mm. this deceptive means of fighting, and so they really racialized it as the mm. other type of martial art. And it took a while for it to even become acceptable. And it was really Teddy Roosevelt, president of the United States, who pushed for and advocated for the adoption of jujitsu. Mm -hmm. And among the American military, he actually, he studied it, he practiced it, and he thought, this is great. Mm -hmm. This is great. Why shouldn't we learn this? Mm -hmm. And why shouldn't the, Ameri <clears throat> excuse me, the American military, why shouldn't they adopt these techniques? Um, and so he, part of, the reason why it became popular was because he was really pushing for it here in the U.S. Okay, and that was that that became a kind of um, a, fo uh, a regular fixture of feminist self-defense at that point. It was a jujitsu and judo um, basis to 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 feminist or to women's self-defense. Does that have a an enduring history? I mean, is it? Is there something specific to jujitsu, or, or are you aware of whether at a certain point it might get displaced by other arts, maybe uh, Aikido, maybe maybe Japanese <clears throat> styles, or or does it run through the twentieth century that it's judo and jujitsu and boxing? It's judo, excuse me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's judo and jujitsu and boxing until uh, World War Two. Okay, and in World War Two with um, many of the soldiers being stationed in the Pacific, they begin to study other types of Asian martial arts. And that's where you see karate coming into the United States um, and you see all different forms of, of martial arts. Um, but it's pretty consistently judo, jujitsu, uh, and boxing mm -hmm. from what I can tell from 1904-ish into mm -hmm. the 1940s. But you say that, it, so jiu-jitsu was regarded as something a little bit too foreign maybe and a little bit, in the stuff that I've read about, um, when I've, I looked at a lot of kind of um, uh, English and British self-defense books from as far back as I could possibly go. And by the, by the time of the 1900s and through to the 1930s really, jiu-jitsu was always tricks. It's like tricks, the tricks of the, of the, of the jiu-jitsu person. Because like wrestlers and boxers, they, they, they were like, oh, I don't know how I feel about these tricks. And it wasn't more than art, was it? And it was just like some tricks that you could use, you could add it to your repertoire to become a more rounded prize fighter or whatever. Exactly, exactly. So boxing and wrestling were seen as the traditional manly art, the traditional um, honorable means of fighting. Yeah. And jujitsu was seen as something that they did, the other, this tricky culture. But because it was effective, hmm. that is part of why these boxers and these wrestlers started to say, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we should practice these tricks, right? And yeah. so in the military, once the military adopts it, then it becomes a lot of the boxers and wrestlers end up learning these techniques and, hmm. and then they kind of create what I consider the first mixed martial arts, where they combine techniques, um, especially after World War I, they start to teach these mixed martial arts self-defense classes. 
and they become very popular because they, they are effective and the jujitsu techniques are more effective in some ways mm. for self-defense purposes, especially yeah. for women because they, they're using the passive resistance. And Yeah. And I mean, there's two questions I want to ask at this point. One is at what point do you find in media representations or, or in people's accounts, uh, jiu-jitsu no longer being a, 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 a negative other but but some or even maybe not even an exotic other but something more domesticated but that, that's the first question I think do we start to see the the reputation or the um, the interpretation of judo and jiu-jitsu improving over time it's definitely improving over time throughout the 20th century I would say that that's an interesting question to look at even for now because even in the 1990s you know when uh, the UFC, the mixed martial art boxing came out, there was still this exoticization of jujitsu. And mm. you know, this isn't, so we still even see that into the late 20th century. Um, so yeah, I mean, it never quite even, I, I think today it's fully accepted for the most part, but it always had that tinge of otherism associated yeah i mean i i i have a set this is not my second question yet my i really don't want to forget my second question but i i always feel that jiu-jitsu feels to me especially brazilian jiu-jitsu now it feels a little bit middle classish anyway because it's very you need a lot of kit and 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 it's it's a bit like yoga and the segue between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and yoga seems it does, and it's all in, done in studios and it seems to occupy that kind of it's got a cleanliness to it, um, but maybe that's a different. I don't know if you. What, I don't know what jujitsu experience you have, so I'll not. I'll not ask you to comment on jujitsu, but I will ask you to comment on my second question on that subject, which was, so the 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 women and feminists and not even not even consciously feminist women are looking to learn some self defense skills, and presumably they're going to environments and to people who would be associated with masculinity, maybe what we would now call toxic masculinity. And what are we finding in the documents and in the archives about the gender politics of feminists going to alpha male, macho men to learn how to defend themselves? Is there anything that we're learning about that? Sure. First, I want to add, before I start that, that there were Japanese uh, American immigrants who opened up jiu-jitsu schools and specifically offered self-defense classes for women. So they're also going, in addition to the boxing gyms, they're also going to these jiu-jitsu studios to learn the training. But your question about toxic masculinity, yeah, for sure. Um, they're confronting a lot of stereotypes uh, from culture in general that women are weaker, that women can't do the same techniques as men, that they need these modified training regimens. And so they're facing that to some extent. And some women push back against that and they're like, no, I wanna learn the real techniques. I wanna, I wanna actually practice this. I wanna actually engage in sparring. So some women push back against that. Some women buy into that. Um, but I think one of the toxic things, especially that emerges from the self-defense movement of that era is some self-defense instructors kind of play into this idea that you need to always be very aware of yourself on the public streets and you need to you know not go out after a certain point of time at night you need to always have someone with you and so in some ways it kind of reflects back that idea that the street is not for women that mm -hmm. the street 
for men who can defend themselves and women cannot. So I think that that's something that a lot of women started to push back against. And mm -hmm. they um, actually, once women started becoming experts in jujitsu and self-defense, then there were more women became teachers. And mm -hmm. then they would open up these gyms that were more feminist oriented. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, you have the right to be on the street. We're going to teach you some verbal techniques, some physical techniques, some psychological techniques to empower you so that you know you can go out there. You can protect yourself. You don't always need someone to protect you. And so that was kind of a different way of thinking that pushed back against those ideas of masculinity. So uh, it's interesting though, because, um, so on the one hand, the, 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 the initially male instructors are giving a kind of moral uh, injunction to the, to the students saying, yeah, I can teach you this stuff, but you should, you mustn't go out and, and women aren't meant to go out. But actually when you look at the, a lot of the discourse of self-defense, even contemporary self-defense, it's very much a moralistic, like, why would you go out by yourself down a dangerous street anyway? That's still, you know, the, the, the self-defense books and feminist self-defense books seem to go, on the one hand, we have a right to not be afraid, but on the other hand, yeah, maybe don't go down that particular road. I mean, how do we, how do we judge the gender politics of that? I guess it's probably like, no one should go down that road or exactly exactly no one should go down that road right um i think you can see the difference today because we have still two types of women's self-defense classes we have ones that are very much like okay you're going to come in i'm going to show you a few techniques i'm going to give you all the moral warnings about what not to do and then i'm going to send you on your way and then we have these empowerment feminist self-defense classes which really say okay let's look at violence and let's look at all the different sources of violence against women and it's not just that stranger that that stranger danger right someone's going to jump out of the bushes you're going to palm hill strike mm. and you're going to run away back to the safety of the, the lighted street in the police station um and so with the with the feminist self-defense classes then they talk about let's talk about psychological empowerment let's talk about recognizing danger far in advance Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about relationship violence. Let's talk about the real sources of violence against women, which are often not on the street, that are often in your workplaces, in your homes. Mm -hmm. and, and so it takes a more holistic look at, um, at violence and sources of violence, and then a, a broader look at what empowerment means, using your voice, mm -hmm. using your body, and then also obviously using these physical techniques. And so I think there's a huge gap still in the differences. And I do, having trained in a variety of different, uh, so after I stopped training in Weichiru, I trained in different types of, of self-defense systems. So Krav Maga for a little bit, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. There is still this culture of toxic masculinity in many dojos. And the emphasis in traditional martial arts is when women are being trained, there's uh, some instructors view them still as weaker than men. And uh, there's a lot of emphasis on, on modifying techniques and we're not going to do it this way because you're women. And so I still see that kind of in a lot of traditional dodos mm. and it's just a simple shift in thinking that needs to happen in some, in some self-defense classes and in some dojos. So you, you wouldn't generalize across like by style, but you would, you would talk about the atmosphere in a dojo or the, or it's the... totally the atmosphere in the dojo. Cause I've been in uh, excellent Brazilian Jiu Jitsu schools, excellent Krav Maga studios, um, and excellent traditional karate studios, but it just, it's just by the instructor and their mindset about what mm -hmm. men and women are capable of. So when you, 
when you've taught self-defense, I don't know if you still do or not, um, maybe you're too busy nowadays, but um, when you have, which, which kind of, which style do you, have you emphasized? I mean, do, do people walk in the room and you go, okay, we're here for a workout, but this is, a, this is a useful workout, or do you also do the situational awareness and, and like, do, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you navigate that? I spend a lot of time teaching young uh, teenagers uh, and young women in, in university how to uh, defend themselves. And a lot of the first few weeks is actually on using their voice and on mm -hmm. recognizing their personal space and boundaries and mm -hmm. kind of unlearning some of the passivity that they've been taught over, over their life. And mm -hmm. that's a huge part of just the beginning stages of it. And then you move into the physical and the physical techniques are a combination of, of literally like everything. A little bit of jujitsu, a little bit of, of traditional boxing style, you know, punching, striking, karate uh, techniques, and then a lot of uh, a lot of jujitsu style techniques as well to try to get straight to the to the effective strategies that are quick and easy to learn. And do you still find even today that 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 gender is imposed on us in those those typical patriarchal ways, so that so that that young women really are they have become something with uh, that they haven't learned how like the old the, the classic feminist thing about throwing like a girl and and like learn how you learn gender so you're trying to undo gender and you're trying to unlearn it and and teach them that actually you have got this <clears throat> which we would associate with masculinity right uh, this kind of energy do you find that that's a, a, a huge thing or just or are some some of your students like as as aggressive and as powerful or and as projecting of confidence as you would traditionally associate with with masculinity in a patriarchal society i think women are as powerful physically but uh oftentimes they have to tap into their their verbal uh skills especially setting boundaries and being able to 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 say no i mean that's so hard for women that have been trained in this culture that it's not polite to say no or to think of other ways to not hurt the other person's feelings and to maybe you know let them off easy or whatever so just even just getting young women especially to say no mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, don't come any closer or no i don't i'm not interested and walking away like that is a huge step and because of all of the the gendered training that even from a young age with with, with girls and children you know, they're constantly being told that they have to be polite, they have to be nice. And so it's so hard for uh, women by the time they're teenagers, by the time they're entering into the university or they're going into their adult life, it's so hard to say something as simple as no. Hmm. And so we work on a lot on that. So how, how were the, if we go back to the, the progressive era and we go back to the, 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 the birth of, uh, of the women's self-defense movement, how were the... Um, first um female martial arts students how were they navigating their 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 gendered kind of performance of of what it is to be a, a proper person how, does that come up at all oh for sure yeah they were told that when they're on the street and this is like the traditional like polite thing to do is they should not make eye contact with anyone and they should not talk to anyone um, a male especially and so they were taught to be very passive and uh, very 
to try not to um, in any way suggest that they're not respectable, right? They don't mm -hmm. want to give any kind of sense that they're not a respectable middle mm -hmm. upper class woman. So for them, when, when they were harassed, when someone would come and sit next to them or, or try to touch them or say something inappropriate to them, that was a huge transgression, even more so than today when, when somebody gets catcalled or something, right? I mean, mm -hmm. to catcall someone back then was a huge breach of mm -hmm. normal, acceptable, behavior for these middle-class women so for them they were working they were also working on verbal self-defense and some of the self-defense classes talked about okay so they're on the streetcar and someone gets too close to them or says something to them you know what do you say back how do you set that boundary what do you how do you and so sometimes it was just literally speaking up saying something calling for a police officer or calling for and that was a big deal for them to just so be able to do that. Do you find this, this, is this in manuals or is it in newspaper articles or is it in the, where did you, where, what were your archives for finding out this kind of information? Mostly in newspaper articles, though there are a few manuals. Um, the newspaper articles were fascinated by this trend of women studying jujitsu and boxing. So from 1904 to about 1920, there's a bunch of articles on it. And some of the articles are literal tutorials, like this is what to do in this situation because yeah. self-defense instructors were suddenly very popular. And so they would write articles into the newspaper and say, and they had like diagrams of, you know, how to do each technique yeah. and, and advice on what to do uh, on the street. And the, the courts were concerned too. So this is the progressive era. So the courts are very active and involved in trying to reform society. And um, so the courts were also interested in this and the police. So when a woman filed, started to file complaints about this, it kind of became a, a Me Too mo movement of that era with women sharing, this happened to me on this street and this part of town and this happened to me. And so then the police start to, there's more demand on them to try to do something. Um, and so when women would file complaints, then instead of just, okay, whatever, they started to feel the pressure that they needed to actually issue fines and jail time for men who were harassing women on the streets. Okay. And if I'm just thinking about moving this, I mean, I want to ask some questions that aren't necessarily gendered, but they always are. But um, <laughs> so in, I mean, I've read the, before I read your work, I read the work of Emmeline Godfrey on Vic. Victorian self-defense, like masculinity and self-defense and femininity and self-defense. And when you, her, her take on it, it's like, it's like, it's the same as yours. It's, it's, it's in the sense that it's about modernity and about the fears of, of urban menaces of different kinds. So I'm just wondering about the identity of the urban menace in, in the States, because in Britain, 19th century Britain, you're dealing with uh, colonial subjects. You're dealing with migrants such as the Irish, which is where we get the word hooligan from. So the middle, the white middle classes of, of, the, of Britain are worried about uh, Indians, because hence you get the word thug from, from the, the, the thuggy cult in, in, in India, and hooligans, which is the Irish. So it's very, very reflective of the colonial um, structure of Victorian British society. So who were the urban menaces, apart from just men, like, mm -hmm. can that group be broken down a bit more in this U.S. Yeah. context? Yes, it was racialized uh, as not just men, but men of color. Men of color were the menace. Um, and this was often coded in the newspaper articles, but it's clearly there. So the concern was that the shadowy stranger on the street was an other. It was a black man who 
was a, a rapist who was out to to prey on white women. Yeah. Uh, it was a Asian American, um, an Asian an immigrant from especially from China. They were seen as the yellow peril, and that they were living as domestics in, in many people's houses. They were working in 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 the kitchen, right? They were cooks, they were servants. And this idea that they could be sexual predators preying on children, preying on the women of the household. There was also a concern about Southern and Eastern Europeans, that they were, these immigrants uh, were, especially from Italy, that they were potentially sex traffickers running uh, these, uh, these prostitution rings and that they would drug women and mm. assault them and then lead them to a life of shame. So all of these were the coded messages that were not often directly addressed in the newspapers on self-defense, but it's there and you can see those, okay. those themes. So, so the, who are the safe people? The safe people are just like white, um, second, third generation, English speaking. Is, is, the, these are the safe people, I'm guessing. So, they, so what's interesting is that the women were told don't trust these other people but you can trust the white men you know especially the middle the upper class men they they are your fathers they are your uncles your cousins your friends they're your protectors they're your natural protectors but what's interesting is some of the feminists began to speak out against even that concept i mean some of them played into it don't get me wrong they're not all like against this but some of them started to speak out about that. And they actually pointed to examples of domestic violence, of family violence, mm. to say, look, women aren't safe in their own homes. White, middle-class, upper-class women aren't safe in their own homes from the very men who are supposed to be their natural protectors. And they were highlighting that as an issue. But what they found is the more they talked about that, the more pushback they got, and the more, uh, the more anxiety about giving women any rights um, and so some of those are the radical women in the movement that are bringing up those issues. And so they found over time they had to kind of, okay, let's not talk about family violence and domestic violence as blatantly. Um, let's work on getting the vote. And when we get the vote, then we can try to address some of those issues. Wow. So, the, so they, would, they would often have some degree of support from, from respectable men. But as soon as there was a chance that that the, the domestic scene, the middle class or upper class domestic scene might be a contentious place, then they, they close down. Okay, that's, that's, that's really interesting. So um, what about current work in, in around self-defense? Are you, are you doing any more research on this? Is there another book on the way or? No, I thought for a while, I thought I might do something in the 20s and 30s, but I've, I've kind of steered away from that now. I'm working on a different direction. I started to be interested in uh, the suffragists themselves and some of their life stories. Uh, there was a few. There were a few suffragist American women who went to to the UK and were arrested along with the suffragettes of the WSPU. And so I was interested in them. I'm interested in their lives and their relationships and the connections between the suffrage movement, uh, the transatlantic suffrage movement. So I've kind of actually moved in that direction. Okay. I'm looking at some of that, but I have not done anything recently with the with the self defense. Okay, that's really interesting because it, I mean, I was talking to um, 
Evelyn Godfrey. I'm sure you, your paths have crossed and you've read each other's work and everything, but she, she's moving in a very similar direction. Like she's interested in, in certain figures and who were they and what was their stories and, you know, what were their motivations. And so that's so it's, it's great. We, to, we're going to get more kind of biographical focused studies of, of, of players in the, oh, shush. I hate it when that happens, things go bing. Um, but yeah, no, that's great. That's really, really interesting. So is that, an, is that uh, how far along in the project are you with that? Is that new? Or? Uh, I'm in the beginning stages, so I'm still working on it, but it's a suffrage-themed uh, work and looking at relationships between women in the suffrage movement and the transatlantic connections as well. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, uh, thank you so much for for taking the time uh to talk it's um I, I this is this is therapy for me uh, when i can't get training partners and i can't i haven't got i can't really write this is great it's great to speak to um to to really interesting people and you are a very interesting person so thank you very much wendy rouse thank you